So this is important today. Uh, we we're, were talking about risk takers. This is the series we're in. And I'll tell you now that we're going to culminate this series two weeks from today on December 4th. It'll be my last chance to, to do what I do here in this way. Um, but um, there's a reason why we're doing this is because we're, we're in the midst of amazing people taking amazing risks and God blessing and doing crazy good stuff. And you're part of that. And we're gonna, I want to celebrate that with you. We also want to just say, just pause and say, what does this really look like? And is it true that God calls us as part of our walk with him and part of our development for him, part of the, like the actual call in our life to be in places where we will count on it, that you will be asked and invited by God to take specific risks that are uncomfortable for you, that are outside your realm of control or power or confidence, and that he actually builds that in and it's part of a plan and He's waiting for it. So today we're going to take a look at a different kind of, one of those kinds of risks from the Word of God. And we're going to be in the book of Daniel, if you want to go ahead and get there. It's in the Old Testament, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, the book of Daniel. So this is what they tell us. They tell us that at any given moment, if you're a human being, you have 14.7 pounds of atmospheric pressure per square inch pressing on your body. Per square inch. If you weighed it all, it, w- it adds up to over 2,200 pounds of weight. That's over a ton of weight that you're carrying that's pressing on you. Now, the reason we don't always feel it partially is we get used to it. Partially is because it's pressing from all sides and from the inside out. But that pressure is constant. You are constantly being pushed down on the earth, around from the atmospheric pressure. You are being pressed right now, whether you re- recognize it or not. It stands to me as, as a very vivid, real picture of the fact that that is true in a lot of ways in our lives. That when we live in the, the culture we live in, we live in the world we live in, there is the, a pressure on us all the time. If I can mix metaphors, it's kind of like a current that you're standing in the middle of. And that current is swift and, and hard, and it is pushing you a certain direction, a direction that the world typically goes. After a while, you may not even recognize that there's a current around us, but it's common and it's constant. And so, when God wants to move in, in our world, sometimes he will ask us to take certain kinds of risk. And a certain, one of those is a risk that is a risk toward, has to do with that current. Now, to review, just very, very briefly, when we talked about risk, we're not just talking about taking chances for chances' sake. It's not just... It's not just being a thrill seeker. We're talking about when God presents us with a position that we're in and an opportunity and he needs a voice or he needs a stand or he's inviting somebody. Almost always when that risk is presented in scripture, you'll see a couple things happen. The person who is invite, who's presented with it doesn't want it. They're not looking for it. They also don't feel equipped to, to it. They didn't sign up for it. They don't see themselves as a risk-taking leader type. They're a regular person and their first thought is to say, whoa, whoa, it's somebody else. That's somebody else's job. Does that sound familiar to you, by the way? That's how it typically comes to us. Somebody, somebody ought to do something, we say. And God says, sometimes, often, yeah, guess who it is? We say, no, no, no. That's why it's risk. Because there's a real threat of danger. And it is not, it's a test of our faith. 
but it is part of, it is built into the fabric of God's plan for your life. If you are not taking risks, even just occasionally with God, then you're not experiencing the fullness yet of what he has for you, the growth he has for you, the the development he has, the, the fullness of life. So recognizing that and being willing to step into it is something that we're kind of looking at together in Scripture. So it's always going to be accompanied by a need that, that, that there is in the world for somebody else or for a, a group of people. There's going to be fear. There's going to be a, a lack of confidence and that resistance. And there's different kinds of risks. Today, we're going to take a look at what we're calling the risk-taking teenagers from, from the book of Daniel. And it's a really a fairly well-known story. It has to do with three guys who wind up in a fiery furnace. There's, story, there's songs about them in Sunday school, some of us grow up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the story. But I want you to not just write it off because it's real people, real teenagers, and very real risk. And just, we're going to look at it together. And we're going to see a form of risk. And here's what I want you to hear as, as a cornerstone of this morning. Sometimes, often, when we think of risk, we think of something that it's a risk to do something or say something. To put yourself out there to do something or say something. But there's another kind of risk has to do with the pressure that's on you and the current that's pulling you. And that's the risk, sometimes the risk of not being willing to do something and not being willing to say something that everybody else is. So the story starts in Daniel 1, and I'll give you just a little bit of context. I'm just going to read the first seven verses just to jump in. And again, I'm gonna, I can't do justice to this. It is worth reading the whole story. The book of Daniel is fascinating, and you're going to see more than one story. Daniel, the lion's den is there, and a bunch of visions and crazy stuff but here's how it starts in the third year of the reign of jehoiakim king of judah nebuchadnezzar king of babylon came to jerusalem and besieged it and the lord delivered jehoiakim king of judah into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of god these he carried off to the temple of his god in babylonia and put in the treasure house of his god this is what we call the babylonian captivity we'll talk more about that in a second and then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And among these were some from Judah. Four guys are mentioned. Daniel you've heard of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Here's what's happening. God has promised his people that if you don't follow me, I'm going to allow you to be brought in by, under the influence of foreign powers. They're going to topple your government. They're going to take you into captivity. The Assyrian empire which was known for horrible atrocities had already gone and done that with the 10 northern tribes of israel they'd been carried off into captivity and actually they're pretty much never heard from again the remaining two tribes in judah it's called um while later because they had some semblance of coming back to god god gave them more opportunity in the meantime the babylonian empire conquers and overcomes the assyrian empire and the babylonians come in they lay siege to jerusalem and they take the remaining two tribes it fulfills the prophecy of God that says, I've got a people and I'm going to have to teach them a lesson in how to depend on me by, by having them carried away in, by foreign powers. Here's a map of the Babylonian Empire right around 600 BC. This was established because the 70-year the Babylonian captivity started a handful of years before this. 
Now, there's a couple things that are going on when this happens. And this is not nearly as big as the Assyrians. They were a little bit nicer to people, but they were still displaced God's people. Israel was an occupied territory, but part of what the philosophy of the Babylonian Empire did was, was sometimes called renaturalization. You just saw it described here. So they said, we, we, we have a better way to do this. We're going to conquer these lands, but we want them to see that we're for them. And so we're going to find the brightest and the best young people in the nations we conquer, and we're going to renaturalize them into our culture. We're going to help them learn our language. We're going to help them learn our ways. We're going to see how superior it is to it. And it's a little bit of a political ploy. You get the leaders on your side, and then you kind of quiet the people from rebellion. It's kind of like if a president-elect would invite Mitt Romney to come to the White House, just imagine this happening, who they've had terrible words together, and go, maybe we should work together. And in every administration that's elected in our country, it tends to happen this way, that 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 administration will actually bring some people into the cabinet who are from the other party with hopefully to build a bridge. It's to say, let's, it's, it's the old adage, keep your friends close to you and keep your enemies closer. That's what's going on here. So they, bring, so they go and they say, let's go into the schools and let's find the up-and-comers. So they're going to get the homecoming queens and the football captains are going to get the scholar athletes are going to get the, the people who are really at the top of their class. Good-looking people, and let's get the best of them. And they bring these four guys. They rename them. And that's part of the naturalization. So Daniel's his Hebrew name. And let me just tell you what, what these name, 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 names mean. Daniel means Yahweh is my judge. He's given a new name, Belteshazzar, which is Bel, which is another foreign god. These guys are polytheists. Bel protects his life. Now, what's, I've never understood this, why we know Daniel as Daniel. That's his Hebrew name. We don't know him as Belteshazzar. But the other three guys, we know them more from their Chaldean names of Babylonia. And Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. He, rena- he, he got a, a new name, Shadrach, which is, I'm fearful of Aku. I respect Aku, another god. Mishael, his name means, who is like what God is like. Who is like God? Who is like Yahweh? And he's given one who is like Aku. Azariah means the Lord has helped, and he re- receives Abednego, which means a servant of Nebo, which is another God worshipped by them. So they're already kind of trying to change these guys' opinions. Now, there's an amazing little thing that happens where Daniel says they have very clear rules in Judaism about what they eat and drink, and they're, given, and they're instructed by this foreign power who has the power of death over them, and says, we're bringing you in to kind of groom you. He, they, they say, we want you to eat and drink our stuff. It would violate their, the Old Testament covenant law. And Daniel goes to bat and says, try this. Let us eat just vegetables and water and see if we don't come out stronger and better. God honors that. And that happens in Daniel 1. So you got these. You, and, and sure enough, they rise up. And if you, if you look at the... Uh, the end of chapter 2, you'll see this advancement that happens as a result. Verse 48 of chapter 2 says, So the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him. He made him rule over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So that sets the context for what's going on here. And then they come up with an idea. The Babylonian Empire wants to have this place. This was not uncommon at all in those days. 
to, uh, ways to display the national pride. They say, you know, we're a melting pot of people. We got people from all over, but we are one country. And so he erects a nationalistic monument that, that you read about in Daniel chapter 3. Now, there's a little bit of a fallacy. Sometimes people think that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king at the time, built this monument. It, it's the image of him. It doesn't ever say that. All we know is this is giant gold-plated monument that is 90 feet tall. Now, imagine that. 90 feet tall. And the, well, let's just read it. T- chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and he summoned, and this is where you're going to see the, this phrase, a couple of the phrases that are repeated. A little group of people. He summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. So it's almost like a little club. It's kind of like both branches of Congress and the Supreme Court justices and the executive wing and the legislative wing and judicial wing, the Okay, the, all those leaders. That, you'll see that phrase get used. It's basically everybody who is somebody in the land, he summons them and says, we're going to have a big display that says that our nation is blessed by the gods and is the ruling nation, and it is a call to nationalistic pride. So he does that. And it says, so to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So, verse 3 says, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials, the, the, big, the band's all there. They gather for the dedication of the, of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up, and they stood before it. And Herod loudly proclaimed, here's what we're going to do. This is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. And these guys are going to be your example. As soon as you hear the sound of, here's another little list. We'll talk about this in a second. The sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. It's basically saying it's treason not to do this. You're, we're going to have this thing and, and it is a display. Especially watch your leaders. Watch the government and do as they, as they do. This was as common a practice in these kinds of nations, as it would be for us to say the Pledge of Allegiance or sing the National Anthem, it, it, was, it was obviously done as a display of nationalistic pride and loyalty. Now, here's a little distinction. Hang with me as we set this up. We have separation of church and state in our country, more or less. Most of these places never had that. So it was, they were, that always went hand in hand. The king was often associated with the authority of the gods, empowered by the gods, even epitomizing the gods, even called gods. They were blended together. It was not a big thing to say you worship the flag and you worship the king because they blended together. It was expected and normal. But it wasn't in Israel, where the one true God made very, very clear distinctions and said, there is one and only one that you bow to. Do not bow, do not pledge your absolute loyalty or fealty to anybody except the the great I am, the God who is, the one and only. That was part of their law. So the officers club are the employees of the state, and they're going to take the lead on this. And if you saw, I read through, they said, you're going to hear some music. It's kind of like what they did was they said, we put an all-star band together. There's a certain assembly of instruments and singers, and they're going to come up with kind of a new theme song that stands for the nation. And when you hear that particular, and if you, if you just look, you'll see in verse 5, I read it, right? 
It was this combination, the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music. If you read this, you'll see that phrase several times. And it's almost like they get tired of saying it. But it's kind of like if we said, look, we're going to make the Beatles, the Beatles our, our national group, right? And so when you hear John, Paul, George, and Ringo, that's your signal. Be the seventh caller when you hear those John, Paul, George, and Ringo. That's kind of what they're saying. When you hear this particular song. Now, you know, you do this, don't you? We do this in our culture. There's at, there's at many, many uh, stadiums in our country, at the seventh or eighth inning, often it's like the eighth inning, they'll play the song Sweet Caroline. You ever been to a stadium where they play the song? It's, it's an old song. Neil Diamond, who does not look like an athlete to me, never has. And, and, and they play the song, and everybody sings. They go, sweet Caroline. And everybody knows, everybody knows that when they go, sweet Caroline, what do you do? You go, da, da, da. It's like the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> Has nothing to do with the game, but it's just our thing. Three strikes, you're out, we all sing. Or if you go to a certain football stadium around here, right? And, 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 they, and they sing, and they play a song. And, and when they do that song, they go, hang on, Sloopy, Sloopy, hang on. And what do you do? H. I, oh, right? And everybody who's not from around here goes, oh, you people. <laughs> but it's the thing. And if you don't do it, you're kind of looked at funny, right? Like, are you here in support of another team? Not sure how we feel about you. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. It's just, it's a national song. Everybody does it, but it's got this element attached. And the element is, it invokes the gods. It celebrates the gods. It says the God, we, we, follow the, we believe that the gods of Babylon have prevailed and we honor them and we say we follow them and we are nationalistic in our pride. That's presented. And these three guys are part of that group that's gathered. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They are probably still teenagers at the time. It's been speculated they're somewhere probably between 17 and, four, uh, and, tw- and 19 years old. Maybe as young as 15 or 16. Probably 17 to 19 is the sweet spot of where these guys would have been. They are very young. They're in training. And they're told, all right, you up-and-comers, take the lead. Let's do this thing. And guess what they do? They're presented with a chance to take a risk. Not a risk to say something or do something that other people aren't willing to do. A risk that comes with not saying what the whole culture is saying. A risk to not do what the current is pushing toward them to do. They've already heard, it's almost a perfunctory statement, of course everybody's going to do this because we're, we're celebrating our nation. But they've heard that there's a death penalty attached to not. And so we pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 3. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You've issued a decree, O king, that everyone hears the Beatles song. John Paul, George Ringo. When they hear that, they must fall down and worship the image of gold. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing fire. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And they have their names. I mean, you're now on the terrorist watch list. Here are the names. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar, like a whole lot of 
people in power, there's one thing they can't stand. They can't stand people to defy their authority. Nebuchadnezzar, he's furious with rage, and he summons them. He summons Shat. Now, these are guys who have impressed him in the past. He doesn't want them to, to look bad. He wants them to get on board. And he brings these guys. They're brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of God that I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the instruments, the theme song, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. See, he's giving them a chance. Maybe there's a misunderstanding. Maybe you didn't understand how I really felt about this. But this is something everybody's got to do, everybody's expected to do. Very good if you do that. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? There's a lot of arrogance there and pride. But the main thing is that these guys are presented with a culture and an expectation. The current is moving. And they're expected to move with the current. They come to a place where they have a choice to make and so they do now again different different kinds of risk we focus often on the risk of somebody stepping up and taking a chance somebody somebody saying something when no one else is willing to say it. somebody doing something no one else is to do this is just the opposite but it's every bit as much risk everybody in their people group is doing the same thing And they're going to risk how they look, how they're treated, and a whole lot worse if they do otherwise. Here's a response, verse 16 of Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't feel the need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. They make this statement. Now, Pause for a moment because what, what these guys are encountering, encountering has been called something in the New Testament. In, in Romans chapter 12, Paul the Apostle uses this phrase. He calls it the pattern of the world. Normal operating procedure of the world. The world is, tends to go in a way that's independent from God, that, that diminishes those who follow God. It, is, it, is, it treats us, anybody who does, as kind of weirdos or, or defined or, or just not quite intelligent enough to understand the ways of the world. And so Romans 12, 2, Paul will say later on, do not conform any longer to this. The pattern of, the, of this world, the cosmos, it's a system that you're in. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to know, to test and approve what God's will is. You'll, you'll be able to see what he wants you to do. And it's, and it's good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. Can I just pause here and say, this action that these guys are asked to do could have very, very easily been rationalized away. They could have convinced themselves pretty easily, okay, look, it's just a parade. It's just a salute. We know our hearts. We know that we don't follow these gods. We know that we're not really meaning it when we say it. You know, I mean, live to fight another day. They could have said that, right? I mean, let's face it, they... They allow themselves, I guess, to be called by these names that refer to other gods. Well, I mean, they could have, it's, it's, not a, it's no big deal. It's just a parade. It's just something that happens. It's just part of my work. It's just part of my neighborhood. It's just what we do around here. 
I don't think anybody would argue with them. But that's not what they did. And so you see what they did. They said, we will not, we will not bow, and our God is capable. In fact, we believe he's going to. And then the verse that I, I want you to camp on. 3, 16, 18 is where, you, where, we really, where, I, where I want to invite you to live this week. Let me start again in verse 16 and then continue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. And look at the next verse. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There is so much in that. There's defiance in the name of God. There's risk in not going along with the crowd. But you know what else is there? There is a faith that says, the focus of my risk is not for the payoff. It's not because God will then be obligated to display his power. Oh, he can, and he often does. But even if he doesn't, that's not the point. It's not the payoff. It's only because it's true, and it's right, and it's who I am. And I'm going to take a stand and not do what everybody else does simply because I'm connected to a God whose way is right. He doesn't owe me anything if I follow it. It's just right. And therefore, I I I will not break that commitment I have to him. Now, if you've heard the story, you know how this goes. I'm going to summarize a little bit about the outcome. And King Nebuchadnezzar, again, who's not used to being defied, he goes, all right, we'll see about that. He is so angry and so incensed that he makes a, a, a command. Now, the, uh, when it says a fiery furnace, sometimes we wonder what that's like. It's like, does it have a door? Does it have like a little chute coming out of it? What is, how do you fit them in? Is this like Hansel and Gretel? Like you know, witches, you know, stove? How does this work? Fiery furnaces, generally what this refers to is probably a garbage pit, like an incinerator, a large, and they would actually build it in stone. They, they, a lot of times what they would do is they would, um, sometimes it would be in a cave-like front, and sometimes it would be dug out of the earth, and they would put on stone walls around it to keep it, and then they would put all the dump stuff in there. They would ignite it, and they would burn it. It was often outside the, uh, the gates of the city. In fact, Gehenna, or what we hear as hell in the New Testament, is the same kind of fiery furnace. It's where all the refuse gets taken. When, they, when the truck drives off from your house, this is where they dump it. It's, it's burning all the time. He, and they said, look, you're going to go in there. And, but he says, he, he is so angry, he says, crank it. Seven times hotter. Seven times hotter. Now, people have often argued and said, see, this is why it's a myth. It's not a true story because you couldn't make it seven times hotter. What's un, not understood about that is that that is a phrase that's called an idiom. It's not technically saying, I've got a means of measure and it's going to be seven times hotter. It just basically means, crank it up as high as it'll go. It's just how they said it. It's, it's kind of like he said, look, the knob goes up to 10, but this one goes to 11. Crank it up as hot as it'll go. They are, they are putting everything that's combustible in this thing, and it's basically like a house fire in the ground. The flames are coming out of this. Now, some of you are, have been firefighters or know them. Some of you have been near fires. And you know that when you get within 50 yards of a blazing fire, sometimes you can't even stand getting closer. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. They say, we will show you what happens. 
to people who don't go along with, the, what, we're, with what your culture says you must do. They, they bind them. They, I mean, read it. Please read it. They, 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 they tie them up. They take them and they go and they have everybody want to watch. I mean, this is like a public execution. They take them and say, this is what happens. You don't defy the king of Babylon. And they go and it says that it, the fire was blazing so out of control, so hot, that when the, the carriers of them went to throw them into it, they were, they were incinerated themselves from the heat of the fire. They did not survive just carrying. Bummer for those guys. I mean, that's a bummer. What a way to go. And then something happens. Now, I just summarized verses 19 and following. And we're going to pick it up in verse 24. And then something happened. And what I want to, encourage, what I want to tell you is something happened. Sometimes these things happen when you take this risk. Sometimes they don't. The one always happens. The one sometimes happens. And I'm going to call it an intervention and an impact. You take this kind of risk for God in the world you live, there is sometimes an intervention and there's always an impact. First, the intervention. King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, how many guys did you throw in there? He knows. Weren't there three men? Did we not throw three men into into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, what is that? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire. They're unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like he doesn't even have a word for this. We say, oh, look, he's talking about Jesus. Maybe. It's a son of the gods. It is something that doesn't look like it could be an angel. It could be, we don't know what it is, but there's something different about the fourth one. They're walking around unbound in there. So, Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, it's so hot, he's shouting, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. By the way, that's an important phrase. This is what God, small g, are you willing, are you going to save you? And now he's using a very formal phrase. It says, I am convinced that the one, something just happened here that shows that the God you serve is the Most High God. Oh, he may still think there's other gods, but there is one and only one who pulls that stuff off. Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And all the government officials, satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. They didn't just survive a fire. A miracle happened here. Their robes were not scorched. There was not even smell of fire on them. There is an intervention that happened. I want to just pause there before we talk about the impact of this because we're going to bring this to where you and I live. Okay, you, you've got pressures on you to conform. You've got compromises that are asked of you where you live, where you work, where you go to school. You've got things that the culture does that it's no big deal. Everybody does it. You've got those things that you are dealing with. And when you're presented with a choice that says, what what if the call of God on my life is to take a risk and the risk is to say, I'm not going to bow. I'm not going with that request or that demand. I will not bow. If that happens, what does God do? 
Sometimes he does unbelievably miraculous things. But you know what he, will, he does as part of his intervention? This is what's so cool about this. Everybody speculates, who is this fourth figure? I don't care whether it's an angel. I don't care whether it's the, the pre-incarnate son of God, Jesus. I personally think it's Christ. I don't care if God just manifests himself in a different way that looked visible to them. Here's what I know. God got in the fire with them. He climbed in the situation with them. He didn't just command them to do it and watch. He went into the fire. There is a, an assurance there that I want to hang on to that says, regardless what the outcome is, when I go with this risk, I'm going not alone. I am going with a God who is walking into the fire. He's willing to do that with me. The, the prophet Isaiah, I, I don't know if he's referring to this kind of thing or not, but this is what he says. Now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You're mine. So when you pass through the waters, maybe he's referring to Moses or Joshua, pass through the waters. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, will they not sweep over you? And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You know, you hear this, this Psalm 23. They always read it at funerals. It's not written for funerals. It's written for life. And here's one of the phrases of it. This is not just when you're on your deathbed. This is where you live right now. Because some of us are walking through the valley, a valley right now, a valley of the shadow of death. It's not even death. It just reminds you of it. It doesn't feel like there's any hope. And he's like a shepherd to us. This is what the psalmist says. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil. Why? Not because I won't have pain. Because you are with me. You have a God who is so in love with you, who so, who so wants to have a relationship with you that when you come to know him through his son, flaws and all, he says, you are not getting rid of me. I'm going to walk you through some amazing journeys and some adventures. Some of them are going to be painful on purpose. Some of them are unfair and unjust and they're going to happen to you. But I will walk with you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you because I am so in love with you. Can, I, can you hear that for where you live right now? With what you're facing right now? That if you have a personal relationship with God through his son Jesus, your God is so in love with you. He says, I'm walking every single step of this. Nothing's surprising me. Nothing's going to baffle me. Nothing is beyond my control. I am with you. And you go, yeah, okay, we'll do something. He goes, I'm with you. I'm accomplishing something. Hang with me. That's what they experienced. That is the intervention. Now let's just talk very briefly about the impact, and then we're going to kind of pull down to where we live. Can I, can I just, I like to do this sometimes. Can you imagine what it would have been like for these guys? They're bound. They're throw, I mean, can you imagine a wall of fire and you're tossed into it? I, I don't even want to think about it. And then you find that your bond, it, like it's, maybe it burned away their bonds, but nothing else is burned, and you're standing there in the middle of a raging fire. I just can't, I, I just wonder, I would like to ask these guys, what was that like? I mean, I picture, best I can picture is like if you're in the rainforest and you got a mosquito net around you and you got the mosquitoes all coming and you're going, <laughs> you can't get to me. Or, or some of you, have you ever done a, like those shark cages? You know, 
and the sharks are swimming and swarming, and some of them you see, and they bang against the cage, and you go, and people are like, just stand there. If it were me, I would go, ha, ha, ha. I'd still be freaked out, you know? But there's something wild about being in an environment where there's a protection around you. It's like a force field. I don't even know what it is. And you just go, how cool is this? This is what God does sometimes. And then you see the impact it, it made. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. They defied the king's command. They were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they'll be cut into pieces. Their houses will be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. And then it says, he gives them a promotion. Now, I'm not sure how I would feel about getting a promotion from the guy who just threw me into the burning fire. You know, I think I'd like to be as far away from you as possible for future reference, but he, he promotes them. And he, and he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God displays his power. You know, there's, we focus a lot in this verse. Jesus said this. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before him, uh, him before all the angels of God. He who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. I, we tend to focus on the second part of that. Oh, you better not disown God, man. That's trouble. But don't miss the first part. When God says, people are willing to acknowledge me, he says, I'm going to be in your corner. I'm going to acknowledge you. Well, what does that mean? I think it means like impact. I'm going to lift you up. You're going to get see things happen. I'm going to do it before the angels of heaven. I'm going to lift you up. And now let's just take a few minutes and talk about, so what, what, how does this affect us? Sometimes the most important risk you can take is not something, is not to do something or to say something but to not do something that everybody around you is doing and to stand against the current of what everybody's doing. Look, there are ways that you are expected to go along. Some of you have to take clients out for work and it's just part of the job. You got to take them to where they want to go. You got to drink what they ask to drink. You got to smoke what they ask to smoke. You got to go to frequent the places that they go. You say, I have no choice, right? It's my job. I'd be fired. I'd lose my job. Now it's going to get a little sticky in here. What does the risk look like there? We are places where there are styles of dress in certain jobs or certain locations that are just expected because, you know, it's just how the style is. There's certain language that's used in the environment you're in, the team you're on, or the, or the, the workplace you're in, the school you go to. There are social views that everybody is saying the same thing and you know how they feel about anybody who disagrees with that particular view. What do you do in that environment? Well, you know what we tend to do? We just go, just stay invisible. Just kind of, it's just the system. It's just what you have to do. I have no choice. I don't want to look like I'm strange. And God calls it, the pattern of this world. And his call to us is 
Do not conform to it. He's not giving you a bunch of rules here. He's just saying, I got something better for you. I'm asking you to honor it. I'm asking you to find it, to live it. See, Moses had everything offered to him if he'd just gone along. That's what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He'd been adopted. They didn't even know he was a Jew. He chose, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ, who he had not met, but who he was making way for, as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Yeah, but I, 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 I look like an outsider. I look like I don't fit in. I don't, I, people think I'm strange. Like maybe like, a phrase that you'd be like you feel like an alien or a stranger like first peter one says those obedient children don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance just as he who called you is holy be holy in all you do for it's written be holy because i'm holy since we call on a father who judges each man's work impartially live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear the next chapter he says dear friends i urge you as aliens and strangers in the world abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul I have a friend who uh, got, went on a Christian um, uh, dating site. Some of you are on one now. Some of you have, have met your spouse there. Went on a Christian dating site and was trying to, uh, you know, figure things out and was reading about the standards that people have on a Christian dating site and said, and, and there was one profile, somebody who looked really interesting, and then got to part, and this is a male who's looking for a female, and a female who said, um, I want to be upfront about, your views on sex. Because if you're not interested in having sex before marriage, we don't, you don't need to bother with me. I mean, that's pretty much putting yourself out there, right? I don't really care what your standards are. I don't really care what the Bible says. I'm looking for this, and if you're not interested in it, then don't bother. And my friend said, you know, I would expect that on most sites, but not this one. It permeates into our culture, even into ours. There are even people that we might sit around who choose different paths. And God says, that's not your, that's, that's, just, that's just the current. The one who called you is holy. Be holy. In all you do. That system that we're in that permeates is, is called the world by God. And First John 2 puts it this way. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is in him. For everything that's in the system, okay, the system, the current, and, there's, and it, 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 it gives three examples. Cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. There's a whole sermon on this, but we'll just go, keep going. It comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God will live forever forever sometimes your most important risk isn't to do something no one else is willing to do sometimes it's to not do what everybody else is doing here's another here's another practical uh thing we need to pull from this i i think we can and I, i'm just going to pause for a minute and let everybody invite you i want to talk to our teenagers okay i'll talk to our middle school high school maybe young college students who are, i'm looking over here because a lot of you are over here these guys, are, these guys are your age when they do this. 
And they're in a far higher position and far more at stake. And at this age, they have a decision to make. And this is what I believe. I'm going to be with you Tuesday. I'm going to pick up on this. I I, I absolutely believe this. I was a youth pastor for years, and I've, I've seen it. I believe that in every generation, every generation, God is on the search for young people. He's looking for young people who will say, I'm going to be different. I, ha- I know a God who has changed my life. I'm, I don't care if I don't look like everyone else in my school. I don't care what they say about me. I am willing to stand. I am willing to say I can, I'll be different if by being different. Not for, not for being different sake. Not weird for weird sake. Sure, buy stylish clothes. Fine. But when it comes down to who you are and what you say and what you do, I believe God is looking in this generation, in our schools right now and saying, who will stand up? Who will stand against the current? Who can I count on that I will build my kingdom through in this next generation? Guys, I believe he's asking you that. These young men didn't have anything more than you've got. And yet they said, we'll do it. And God changed their environment. I personally believe that God can radically influence the schools we have. Yes, God's not invited in. We can't pray. You get in trouble for carrying your Bible. All the things are there. But if you, if just a handful of us in this room would say, that's going to be me. I will accept that challenge. I will take that risk. I'm not telling you you won't be singed. I won't tell, tell you you won't have pain. But I will tell you that there will be impact that will last forever. I could say more about that, but let me just throw that your way. I, can I encourage you? Find somebody else and make a pact. Maybe two or three people and say, make a pact. Say, what would that look like for us? What will the pact, we will not bow, look like? Borrow their term and see what God does through you. And now again, I want you to hear this from chapter 3, verse 18 that the principles of taking this kind of risk is that there is not a guarantee that it'll be painless. There's not a guarantee that, that God is going to do the miraculous every time like he did. They, you hear what they said? We will not bow. Uh, we believe he's going to intervene, but even if he does not, even if he does not, understand this, we will not bow. That's in, in contrast to what we sometimes call the health and wealth gospel that says, you take a risk, you take a step of faith, and God's obligated. He's got to come through for you. It's his promise. His promise is he's going to open heaven's uh, storehouses. He's going to bless you. Oh, yeah, no, he's going to bless you. But that doesn't mean you're not going to be hurt. And it doesn't mean you're going to get rich. God doesn't always produce that kind of victory. But he does produce impact. Can I give you an example? There's a movie out in the theaters right now. It's called I'm Not Ashamed. And it's the story of the Columbine shooting in 1999 which most of us who have lived long enough, we remember, you've heard of it, where two senior students uh, descended on their campus with explosives and weapons, and they killed 12 of their classmates and a teacher before they killed themselves. The first person they killed that day was a girl named Rachel Scott. Rachel Scott was sitting outside uh, eating lunch with a friend when these guys walked up. And Rachel Scott... Just, just weeks before this encounter had written a statement that she decided to show to her school and her friends that basically said, these are my ethics. Here's what I believe. I'm going to live with compassion because I've been touched by Jesus Christ. These two 
students who, who committed this act knew of Rachel Scott. They knew of her statement. When they came in, it's not necessarily they were going to, I don't know if they were going to target her or not. But when they came upon her, they asked her the question that has been repeated. They shot her. She's trying to crawl for safety. And they asked her, this has been recorded, this question, and here's part of the movie to see what happens. Pass the pot. Put a wall for her. Plan B. still believe in God? There might be a price to be paid, but there is an impact that will never be regretted. For those who say, the pressures of my culture and my world and standing for what I believe are immense and strong, but I will not bow. I will declare who I am. I will stand for what is true, even if it costs me. There is a risk that's being offered to some of us right now. Oh, I hope it's not as extreme as that one. But it is worth the risk. Pray with me.